I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. Welcome again to our podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. It's my great pleasure to have Bill Goldsboro with us this morning. Bill has been a longtime CBF employee, and as any of those who have been around the Bay a bit know, the Goldsboro name goes back uh, probably many centuries, especially on Maryland's eastern shore. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Will. Tell us a little bit about um, how you got started at CBF, what some of the many different jobs you've had have been, and um, I, I guess especially, let, let's start with Smith Island. Uh, okay, well, I uh, grew up on the Eastern Shore, uh, and uh, that inspired me to um, get a degree in environmental science, but after college, what do you do next, right? Hmm. So uh, one day I was driving over the Bay Bridge and I saw a Save the Bay bumper sticker. <laughs> Uh, and uh, followed up on that and um, found this place called Chesapeake Bay Foundation that at that time had about a dozen people working there um, and here. Um, and I happened to have an opening at a new education facility on Smith Island uh, that I applied for. And um, so I ended up spending two years there in that waterman's community uh, running education trips and uh, I will still say they, they were the best two years of my life. That uh, y y you, you were hired by the same person who hired me. We started at roughly the same time, Arthur Sherwood, our founder. And it was Arthur's dream to have an environmental education center out on the islands. And Smith Island was the first one. Yep. Uh, Arthur was quite an inspiration to all of us. What other uh, centers do we have now in addition to the Smith Island Center, which still exists and runs nine months a year? Well, uh, of course, we, um, we, we had the Fox Island Center uh, a little bit before Smith Island, and we were only running that in the summers. That was uh, an old hunting lodge, as you know, a uh, great spot right across Tangier Sound from Smith Island. And uh, since then, of course, we've added uh, Port Isabel Center on Tangier Island, south of Smith. Uh, and the Karen Noonan Center uh, at the head of Tangier Sound, Lower Dorchester County. So we've got four residential centers on Tangier Sound. Now. Yeah, that, that's right. My mistake when I said it was our first. It was our first in a community, and that has some uh, interesting challenges and attributes to run environmental education centers there. Give, give us just a sense of, of what it's like for a kid, a teacher, uh, even an instructor uh, to be operating out on these island centers. What 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 do we gain from that, and what do the students and teachers gain? Well, uh, of course, it's been uh, 35 years since I did that, <laughs> <laughs> and all of our memories are getting a little dimmer now. But uh, uh, but uh, there, there's no there's no dimming the excitement that that is always experienced by, by students and teachers that come on those field trips. It's, it's, it was a phenomenal experience for me, and I know it continues to be for, for those kids that go to those programs every year. Really life-changing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the focus in all of these experiences is often very much on the resource, on the creatures that live in the Chesapeake Bay. And so I I want to come back and I want to come around and, and talk to you now as we start the summer about blue crabs. But just before we do that, t tell the importance of exposing students to the creatures that we call them the critters in the bay and what sort of things they're seeing in that part of the uh, of, of the Chesapeake. Well, um, whenever we um, 
employ any of the harvest techniques that the watermen use on Smith Island and some of our other centers down there to catch crabs and fish or oysters or whatever, we're always pulling up a wide variety of bay life. And those are moments of, of wonder for those kids. It's, it's just incredible every time you pull in a crab scrape uh, with a wad of, of, of grass that's got not only crabs, peeler crabs, soft crabs, hard crabs, but, but grass shrimp, um, uh, stickleback fish, a little odd fish that builds a nest in the grass beds. Um, seahorses, one sea, of my favorite. Seahorses, yeah, exactly. Um, just a wide range of, of, of species. It's, it's really uh, uh, quite an experience. Never, never loses my um, excitement when I see that uh, crab scrape come up and all the different life that's in it. So as you were teaching on Smith Island, I think that furthered your interest in the fisheries of the Chesapeake Bay. Bill, for our listeners, is now our senior fisheries scientist. So you left uh, CBF for a bit, continued your education. Right. Yeah. Um, left Smith Island to go to graduate school. I, I really didn't want to leave, but uh, I, I knew I had to to, um, to to get that added experience. And then came back to CBF in a more office bound. Well, I did. I came back. Uh, I didn't actually have a plan for after graduate school either, uh, but I, I, uh, I came back um, because it was an opening actually in the education program. Again, I started back there, but that was uh, in sharp contrast to Smith Island. That was the Baltimore Harbor program. So I worked there for a year and I was in the education program for a few years as a senior manager and then phased into fisheries work in the mid 80s when I actually finally convinced you that it would be a good idea that CBF did that. You see my memories dimming as well, yeah. And became CBF's fisheries scientist. That's right. So. so let's talk a little bit about the Chesapeake Bay blue crab. Maybe we'll have you back in the fall and talk about oysters and finfish, but I think I and probably a lot of other people who love the bay are thinking crabs right now. It's such an iconic species. And it's a species that has had enormous variability over the years. What, what's the status of Chesapeake Bay blue crabs right now? Well, uh, not real, real good. Um, we probably got about half the crabs we had 20, 25 years ago right now. Um, they are uh, under a lot of pressure from a degraded bay and poor water quality. Uh, and they continue to be uh, the most important fishery for bay watermen. So um, they're being harvested uh, pretty strongly. Um, watermen are dependent on, on crabs, especially in those island communities. So it's a very important fishery to maintain. Um, the latest survey uh, of the population was done this past winter. They've, they've been doing a, a, a winter dredge survey now for about 25 years. Uh, that's a very strong, uh, statistically strong um, snapshot of the population that's uh, important for guiding management of the fishery. Uh, what it showed was that uh, actually good news relative to last year, all components of the population, males, females, and juveniles came up relative to last year, but, but are still well below average levels. Uh, so it's, it's guarded good news. 
on just a year-by-year basis. I think you have to take the longer-term view of it, though, and, and realize that um, there can be fluctuations from year to year. If we happen to get a good, good uh, reproductive cycle, a lot of juvenile crabs coming in, uh, that can boost the population. Um, but what we have to look for in a longer term is a little more stability at higher levels, um, both to, um, to keep the fishery going um, and keep the crabbers going, uh, but also to maintain that population uh, at a more stable stable level. And, and I think that, that's what management is geared toward. Uh, the, the, the data that comes from that survey they, <clears throat> and the data that comes out of the fishery, the catch rates and so forth, they, they use that to put together scientific guidelines for the fishery, a target population level um, for female crabs, the spawning crabs, and target crabbing rates. They call it fishing mortality is the term. Um, and for both of those also threshold levels that you don't want to exceed. Uh, otherwise you'd be into the overfishing or the overfished realm uh, for those two parameters. And you want to avoid that, of course. Um, so we've done a pretty good job in the last few years with those guidelines of avoiding overfishing. The, the, the crabbing rate has actually been below hmm the target level um, for six years now. Hmm. And that's very positive. Of course, that's dependent on uh, the, the data from, from the, the harvest. Uh, and uh, I think that's a variable we can tighten up some going forward. Um, but, um, but that makes you think that there are other things at work uh, affecting the crab population, and there certainly are. Uh, maybe one really good indication came a couple of years ago in 2012 <clears throat> when we had a really strong year class coming in from the 2011 spawn uh, as indicated by the winter 2012 dredge survey. We were expecting a, a big boost in the population and, uh, and those crabs reaching catchable size by late summer 2012 and boosting, boosting the harvest for crabbers, but that never happened. Uh, and so uh, the and question is, why was why did that um, year class not not really uh, materialize into adult crabs of any of any number? Uh, they did find them in the summer trawl survey that the, the states do they, in big numbers early in the summer, but decreasing numbers as the summer went on. Uh, and that start that, that that's a piece of information that's useful in trying to figure out why. Uh, and, um, and a couple of other key pieces of information, 2011 had also been a banner year for striped bass spawning. So we had an abundance of one-year-old striped bass out there looking for something to eat. Uh, it also was a year when we saw a big influx uh, of another predatory fish uh, called the red drum. Um, we had red drum in the bay as far up as Baltimore, which is unheard of. People were catching these small red drum throughout the bay. Red, red drum being more usually thought of as more of a southern species outside the Chesapeake Bay. Correct, correct. And they, were, they, they moved up the coast. They have been moving up the coast further in recent years. And that year in particular, uh, red drum were caught off Cape Cod, which is unheard of. Uh, so maybe there's a, a climate change element at work there. But in any case, there was a strong red drum year class uh, for good spawning a year or two before that in North Carolina. I think it was the best they'd ever had. So we had a lot of, uh, of, of fish looking for something to eat. A lot, lot of predators. A lot of predators. Uh, red drum, if you look in the literature, they feed heavily on crabs. 
Uh, and uh, we hear a lot of times from watermen opening up rockfish bellies and seeing a lot of crabs in them. Now that depends on where they are, you know, if they're in shallow water, up in the marshes, wherever they'll, they'll where they're in, encountering crabs more readily, uh, they'll, they'll eat more crabs. Um, but a third factor is um, <clears throat> a lack of other forage. We've had poor recruitment of uh, Atlantic menhaden in the bay for 20 years now. And those juvenile menhaden that are usually abundant here in the summer uh, are a, a perfect bite-sized piece of nutrition mm. for striped bass and a preferred forage for striped bass. So a uh, lack of that forage um, and uh, an abundance of predators and an abundance of these juvenile crabs from that good spawn. Uh, and then one final piece of information, grass beds in the bay uh, where crabs usually hide when they're shedding their shell and they're very vulnerable, and especially those juvenile crabs, which shed their shell quite a lot the first year, um, they're down to about 20% of their historic coverage in the bay as a result of nitrogen pollution. So uh, lack of cover for these abundant small crabs, uh, an abundance of predators, um, and, uh, and a lack of the preferred forage of those predators, the striped bass at least, all conspired uh, I believe this is a fairly strong hypothesis for what happened that year, uh, to mean um, high predation losses of that year class of blue crabs. So I, I think, you know, looking at the big picture, what it, what it means is a, a trophic imbalance, and that means food web, a food web imbalance, uh, as a result of a variety of ways that we have impacted this system. So the blue crab, as I understand, has a fairly short life. It grows to market size fairly quickly. And this, I would imagine, makes it more vulnerable to external variability, such as more predators, lack of uh, habitat, even a cold winter can affect a year class. Well, that's right. Um, there are natural factors like cold winters, uh, also uh, the prevailing winds and currents offshore in the early fall when the uh, larvae, um, which are spawned at the mouth of the bay, released at the mouth of the bay and go out to the sea for a month or so and then depend on those favorable currents to be swept back in in early fall. All those kinds of factors can cause variability in a population and uh, and, and you could look at that as there being a certain vulnerability to them. But I, I think when the, when the population is down where it is now at about 400 million uh, compared to, I guess I would say a, a, a healthy blue crab population would be closer to a billion crabs in the bay, um, that, uh, that they're more susceptible to those factors right. than, than they might be when, they're, when the population's healthier and, and more resilient. Tell me what uh, I'm wrong when I say this, because you're the expert, I'm not. But as I understand it, uh, we think that we, science, thinks that some 90% or more female blue crabs overwinter at the mouth of the bay. And when they release their babies, their, their spawn, these larvae, and they are in their larval stage, float in the top centimeter or two of the water column out into the ocean. Am I, am I right so far? Pretty much. I'll qualify a little okay. bit. Okay. Okay. <laughs> good, good. Qualify. Well, first of all, uh, I think when you say 90%, you probably mean 90% of the mature females. Right. 
uh, concentrated down in the lower bay, mostly at the mouth of the bay, but up into the bay some as well, all uh, from their migration down the bay that started the previous fall after their mating uh, episode, uh, and then continued in the spring, uh, all preparing for that summer uh, spawn or release of those larvae at the mouth of the bay. Yeah, and then they do drift out to sea, and they do concentrate near the surface of the water. Now, there are some what they call diurnal vertical migrations in the water column. So they, those larvae will move up and down in response to light, you know, so mm -hmm. throughout the course of a 24-hour day. Um, but for the most part, when they're high in the water column, they're concentrated right at the surface. And when the, as they mature, they grow fins, and when they're able to be mobile, they dive down and generally ride bottom currents back up into the Chesapeake. And a good year class would be one in which a large amount of these small crabs get back into the bay. A bad year class could be affected by them being blown north, south, or even too far out into the ocean to, to get back into the estuary. That's right, and, and, and they're really, they're, they're not mobile like an adult crab at that stage. They, they can flit around a little bit, but they're still basically planktonic, which means they're at the mercy of the currents. They do have an ability, as you said, to move vertically up and down, and, and they will get in that lower layer that generally moves inshore into the mouth of the bay. Um, but when those currents are not favorable, uh, they can be swept up the coast or down the coast. And, uh, and, and people might recall from days at the beach, either maybe Ocean City or, or the Outer Banks, sometimes in late summer, early fall, swimming and, and having these little tiny itchy bites all over them and, and that, that's crab larvae that, that have not made it in the bay uh, that are concentrated along those beaches. Uh, and uh, so when you, when you feel that, that's probably not a good sign for, for that year's spawn as far as Chesapeake Bay is concerned anyway. Uh, so yeah, they're swept in the bay with those currents and, and as soon as they get in the bay, uh, virtually as soon, they, they, they uh, continue to develop into their late larval stage and, and then into the small crab stage where they actually undergo a final molt as they're drifting along there and then they turn into something that actually looks like a crab, a tiny crab, but a crab nevertheless. And that's when they are mobile. That's when they, they undertake what they call settlement where they drop out of the water column uh, and they, they can propel themselves around. But at that point, in the lower bay, on up into the Tangier Sound area, uh, they, uh, it, it is critical for them to find habitat, to right. find cover. And, and that's why those areas, um, I would say um, the eastern shore of Virginia up to Tangier Sound, the Mobjack Bay area of the western shore of Virginia, uh, and, and the abundant grass beds that they've, they've always had in this system are critical for the blue crab life cycle. And in fact, the life cycle probably evolved to be, um, to, to take advantage of those habitats. So as those habitats have been degraded by nitrogen pollution. Phosphorus, uh, sediment as well. Exactly. Yep. Uh, the, that, that life cycle has been impaired. So one more reason why the Chesapeake Clean Water Blueprint, the attempt to reduce the amount of nitrogen, phosphorus, and sediment is so critical to the species we love because underwater grasses have a tough time when the water is cloudy either through too much algae caused by nitrogen or phosphorus or pure dirt in the water, too much sediment, and that reduces the availability of sunlight to nurture underwater grasses, which connects right back to our crab cakes and 
crab, uh, crabs of all types uh, that we love. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, um, and the other the phase of that phenomenon as well, when uh, all those uh, phytoplankton algae cells die and sink to the bottom and are decomposed by bacteria and, and use up oxygen in the water column in the process and create what we call a dead zone, the anoxic layer in the, in, the, in the lower, the deeper parts of the bay that can make up as much as 40% of the volume of the bay in midsummer, uh, that has a big effect on crabs as well in that it crowds them into shallow water, making them more vulnerable to predators and, frankly, to crabbers and, and to each other. Their right. cannibalism can be a big, big factor for blue crabs as well. Plus, that dead zone kills massive amounts of, of what, what they call benthic infauna, the little worms and clams and things that live in the bottom that crabs feed on. Uh, studies have shown that, that uh, enough uh, of, of that kind of bay life to feed half the crab population can be killed annually by the dead zone. So crabs get impacted by these uh, pollutant uh, forces in many different ways. You know, when I, when I think about blue crabs and how they move at different stages of their lives, how males and females are different, wouldn't it be fabulous if we could see them in a remote sensing capacity over a time-lapse photography, it would be like an enormous superhighway of movement going in and out, up and down, into the marshes, back out, into fish's mouths, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, something I've always thought about. It's, it's just one more example of the mystery and wonder of the Chesapeake Bay and how it works. Um, let's, uh, let's wrap this up a little bit, but, but any thoughts about, about what, what we can do as humans to try to increase our blue crabs that we so love? Well, uh, like we've been discussing, the, the um, degraded nature of the bay, the water quality and the loss of grass habitat and so forth is, has a big impact on the crab population as it does lots of other species. Uh, but what that means essentially is that the carrying capacity for crabs in the bay uh, is reduced. The, the bay cannot produce as many crabs as it would have in a healthy state. Uh, so who does that impact the most? Well, the crabbers. Uh, because uh, we do have uh, this science-based management in place with targets for the population and the crabbing rate that we try and, and, and manage the fishery consistent with. Uh, and if the bay is producing fewer crabs, that means that the limits on crabbing that that approach dictate uh, are going to be uh, stricter. Uh, so, so the crabbers are the ones that are pinched. They are, they are the most uh, direct victims of, of this, this degradation of the bay uh, and reduced production of crabs. So we really should keep that in mind that there are real human impacts uh, to, to the bay's problems. Um, and, um, and I think that would, will, will inspire people probably more than anything else. And in, in the same vein, uh, the commercial crabbing operations, the commercial crabbers are the greatest benefic beneficiaries of more crabs. So if you take the long view, you can say that this is the best thing, both for those of us who love to eat crabs, for the system that relies on a healthy blue crab population, and for those who make their living catching them. Yeah, absolutely, and, 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 and I'd be happy to take the long view and the optimistic long view because that's what I tend to do, so uh, let's hope we get there. It's the only view you can take, and you got to keep working on it. Last thing I want to say is that, you know, you get so many 
crab dishes in restaurants around that have really a food that just can't even be called blue crab, even though they try to. The Chesapeake Bay blue crab is like none other in the world. It is one of the most delicious seafoods in my mind, and boy, do you ever know it when you get a difference between a real Chesapeake Bay blue crab cake versus one that's been produced in the Philippines or somewhere else and is masquerading as Chesapeake-style crab cakes. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, Bill, very much. We'll have you back. We'll talk some more. Bill Goldsboro, Senior Fisheries Scientist at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and let me just say that the respect Bill has across the Chesapeake Bay scientific world is enormous. He is the only, I believe, professional conservationist on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which works on fisheries management issues up and down the Atlantic States. Thank you for all you do, Bill. It's great to have you here at CBF. You're a wonderful partner. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Will. This is Will Baker for the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, our podcast that we do, I do every two weeks, uh, Turning the Tide, Saving the Chesapeake Bay. Don't hesitate to let us know if you have questions, suggestions, advice. Go to our website and uh, click on the link to contact us if you do. CBF.org. Thank you very much. Thank you.